I'm Chip Branditz, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 25th, 2019. Coming up, we'll tackle the issue of cancer. It's easy to associate with hopelessness. The prognosis is often poor. The cure is sometimes worse than the disease. And often, victory is merely called remission, temporary, perhaps fleeting. A spate of recent breakthroughs represents the beginning of a new approach to fighting cancer based on our ever-evolving understanding of how cancer originates and the power of the immune system. According to biotechnology researcher and professor Michael, professor Michael Kinch, presently, we may be at the end of the beginning. We begin with a look at an upcoming event for the science enthusiast. Astronomy on Tap Colorado will be hosting three speakers tonight, June 25th, from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Gun Barrel Brewing Company in Boulder. Astronomy on Tap features accessible, engaging science presentations on topics ranging from planets to black holes, to galaxies, to the beginning of the universe. You can expect plenty of beer to be flowing during interesting presentations, followed by discussion and Q&A. At tonight's event, the first speaker will discuss astronomy in the news, and then Amanda Hendricks will talk about ocean worlds, and Bill Ferrand will present Ancient Eruptions and Enigmatic IP IMPs, Lunar Pyroclastic and Possibly Recent Volcanism. As always, they will have trivia, which this month will be Apollo-themed, and one of the raffle prizes is an Apollo Command Module Foil. That's tonight, 7 p.m. at the Gun Barrel Brewing Company in Boulder. For more information and how to get tickets to the event, go to eventbrite.com and in the event's search field, enter Astronomy on Tap. Michael Kinch was a professor at Purdue University where he researched breast and prostate cancer. He then went on to found an oncology program at the biotechnology company MedImmune, now a professor and vice chancellor at Washington University in St. Louis. He is author of most recently, The End of the Beginning, Cancer, Immunity, and the Future of a Cure, He's joining me by phone this morning to tackle the subject of cancer head-on. Professor Michael Kinch, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks, Chip. Um, so I would like to, uh, this is a very weighty and complex topic we're going to uh, tackle. I'd like to tackle the, the issues in the same order that you mentioned in the subtitle, uh, cancer, immunity, and then the future of a cure. So first, cancer, and I'd like to start with a, with a metaphor that I've heard. Uh, so here on the Front Range, I'm, I'm talking to you from Boulder, Colorado, we have uh, many activists who are engaged in an ongoing struggle uh, about how our region deals with a huge influx of people 
over the last couple of decades. And a concern of theirs are localities and municipalities that they see as fixated on growth as an end unto itself. And so among such activists, I've heard this motto of sorts occasionally, growth for its own sake is the philosophy of a cancer cell. And so, so you don't have to chime in on front-range regional growth issues, but in your expert opinion as a cancer researcher, elaborate on, on what you think of that statement. Well, so it's partly accurate um, as far as its description of cancer. I won't discuss the growth in, in Colorado, but cancer really can be viewed as a disease of fundamental dysregulation, altered um, from the normal in both the growth rates, but then also in its ability to survive. So one of the things that I think we, we tend to forget is that, or not, we have only realized fairly recently, is that most cells in the body are actually designed to die. And sometimes when those designs go wrong and the cells live when they're not supposed to, that can actually be promoting um, the process of, the fundamental process of, that leads to cancer. Yeah, talk a little bit more about this. Um, some people say that uh, cellular biology jargon is, is all Greek to me, and one of those terms uh, that is Greek is, uh, and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, apoptosis. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Yes. Apoptosis, so, thank you. Yes, it's, and, and believe me, everyone pronounces it differently. <laughs> okay. um, it's really the idea which has only um, probably been discovered in the last 20 years or so, that cells, again, are not intended necessarily to stay alive. That, um, and you think about the, the, the cells on your, your skin. Um, the cells on your skin are actually, the, the, those on the outer layer are dead already. If you go deeper into the skin, you'll actually find some cells that as they mature, they are programmed to die um, and move upwards. And we, we slough off skin. We lose skin cells every day. Um, actually, every second, and um, that there's a constant period and, and cycle of growth and death, and when that goes out of balance, then you can end up having um, inappropriate growth, inappropriate survival of the cells, and what is sort of insidious about the disease is that it tends to build upon itself. So inappropriate growth can lead to inappropriate survival, which can lead to more inappropriate growth, and then pretty soon you end up having what's known as a tumor, um, a mass of cells that isn't supposed to be there. The disease really becomes dangerous when the cells within that tumor, or just a few cells within that tumor, gain the ability both to escape from the primary tumor and to go to distant sites in the body. And the, probably the best example of that, um, one of the most well-known examples, is a disease called melanoma, which is a cancer of the dark pigmented cells um, in the skin and melanoma, when it gains the ability to escape, oftentimes goes to the brain and other places where it can be, it can shorten life dramatically, and it's a very, very dangerous disease. And so maybe one way to, to say this is that a, a normal, healthy cell is somewhat designed and programmed to accept its own mortality, whereas a cancer cell is not. Absolutely. The cancer cell is sort of bucking convention, and it usually bucks convention through the process of mutation, and you get those mutations from sometimes just bad luck, but other times environmental causes, genetic causes, and it can be um, any and all of those work together to lead to the cell deciding, yeah, it's going to do its own thing and stay alive when it shouldn't. 
In your book, you have some interesting historical vignettes about uh, pioneers in the field of cancer research and immunology and uh, the topic of whether or not it is uh, cancer which causes mutations or mutations which cause cancer. Uh, tell us about the, the state of that debate. So I think it's probably pretty well accepted now that um, there, is, there are certain mutations now, changes in your DNA, some of which can seem very insignificant, that can lead to this dysregulation of the growth of the cell or the survival of the cell or both. Now, when that cell starts ignoring normal cues to tell it when to grow or not to grow or when to survive or not to survive, it also around the same time starts to um, not care as much and, and not um, repair damage to DNA that occurs all the time. So you end up in a, in a vicious cycle where the DNA that's mutated gains the propensity to become even more mutated, and eventually you get a classic Darwinian selection of you know, survival of the fittest for those cells that have the ability to grow unregulated, and again, it truly gets dangerous when they gain the ability to move around the body unregulated, and then they lodge in places like the liver and the brain and the lungs, and they cause ultimately potentially fatal damage. Yeah, the dreaded uh, phenomenon of uh, metastasis. Do I say that one right? Yes. Okay. You said that one exactly, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in your book, uh, The End of the Beginning, you chronicle many breakthroughs in medical sciences, understanding, and treatment of cancer. And yet there is still this common pessimistic notion that since uh, the war on cancer hasn't been won, well, then it's being lost or at least has ground to a standstill. Well, what do the medical statistics tell about tell us about that? So the good news is that while you know we want a, a cure, uh, we want, if you will, a vaccine that gets rid of everything or prevents it from occurring. And actually, we can return to the subject. We do have some vaccines that can prevent cancer. the The disease itself is is particularly complicated in part because everyone is different, and everyone's cancer is different, and sometimes. Within a particular tumor, the cells are very different even from one another. So you have this enormous complexity, and the treatments that historically have been used, and these treatments are relatively recent since around the time of the Second World War, but the first wave and the first generation of therapies just killed any fast-growing cell. And as, I'm, as anyone who has known anyone who has cancer or has been treated with chemotherapy knows, that includes cells in the intestine that, are, that help us digest our food, hair follicles, and a lot of other cells, blood cells, that are needed for daily function. And that has really been a sledgehammer. And when I used to teach medical students, I would tell them in, this, in the old days that the job really of chemotherapy is to kill the tumor before you kill the patient. And, as, and, and that usually would sober them up and make them realize, hey, this is a very serious subject. Um, the new therapies were getting much more refined in our ability to target cancer cells, and, and that's been a, a huge improvement. And again, as you mentioned, uh, the second topic in the subtitle of your book is uh, immunity. And so before we get further into immunology and its uh, relation to cancer and, and possible cures for cancer, Let's get a little refresher on the concepts and terms involved in a working immune system. And I know that's a, a broad question, so let me uh, try to give it some focus. Say, uh, give us an overview of 
our scientific understanding of the human immune system, say, as, as the AIDS crisis hit in the 1980s, and how that understanding progressed as medical science faced that extreme challenge? Absolutely. And, and HIV-AIDS was a great example um, for scientists and for the public to really understand the importance of the immune system, because fundamentally it's a disease of the collapse of the immune system. So in, in a nutshell, and you know, you, we could go on for hours and days on the subject, but in a nutshell, the immune system has evolved over billions of years to allow our self cells, the cells that comprise you and me, to recognize foreign cells or, or non-self. And so it, when we think of non-self, we historically have thought of bacteria and viruses and fungi and other pathogens that are sort of trying to invade and attack us. But also, and I think one of the key points in, that I make in the book is that it, the immune system also evolved to help corral and restrain cancer. And in what we're learning and some of the breakthroughs we've had recently are a result of the fact that we're realizing that the body normally does a very good job of, of preventing cancer. Um, cancer cells, uh, if you're an ultra-pessimist, um, you can believe that cancer cells actually break out on potentially a daily or even hourly basis, but they're being nicely cleaned up by the immune system. Now, the disease of cancer clearly occurs when the immune system has broken down in its ability to recognize the tumor. Let's talk a little bit about some of the players in the immune system. You mentioned, uh, uh, I think, T cells, uh, B cells, and then there's a, uh, a somewhat controversial topic recently in science of suppressor cells. Talk about those. Okay, so it turns out the fundamental cells that are responsible for the immune system include what are known as T cells, and the, the T comes from the word thymus, which is a gland just um, uh, on top of the heart that uh, where these cells actually grow and mature, and this usually occurs actually when we are babies. Um, the B cells come from the bone marrow, and the T cells and the B cells work together as basically an army. And the T cells have different types of, all the cells are incredibly complex. There are major types of T cells, some of which are known as killer cells, and like the name implies, they can directly seek out and kill something that they perceive to be foreign. Then there are what are known as helper cells, which basically are like the generals that tell everyone where to go and, and they provide the assistance to uh, really ramp up the defenses. And then the B cells produce these proteins called antibodies, which probably everyone has heard the word antibodies. But these are highly specialized, you can think of them as guided missiles that have the ability to selectively identify and kill something that they view as being foreign. Um, so all of those work together, and when we get an infection, those cells all kick in, and we are able to defeat, hopefully, that infection. But we leave behind what are known as memory and suppressor cells, and these memory cells allow us, if we run into that pathogen again, to reactivate that immune system and, and kill very vigorously. And suppressor cells, which have been very controversial, and we probably don't have time to go into the gory details, but there are cells that suppress the immune system from getting out of control. Um, you can imagine we run into uh, foreign pathogens on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, 
And if we were constantly at full alert with all of our cells ready to attack at any given time, there wouldn't be enough cells and enough energy in the body to be able to propel that. So suppression is a good thing, but in the case of cancer, if you suppress too much, you can actually allow the cancer to grow out. All right. So uh, at first blush, uh, you know, cancer is obviously a major topic, and, and the immune system response, as you pointed out, is very important to our health. Um, but may, maybe at first blush, we didn't see exactly uh, how they are related. Um, using immune systems uh, for cancer is, is, is not exactly a new revelation, according to your book. In fact, uh, your book weaves together some uh, historical stories about pioneers in the field of immunology, uh, some mavericks, not always immediately successful, but often brilliant and tenacious in their beliefs. Um, maybe share with us a story about one of these early pioneers. Absolutely. And there were quite a few, and that was the fun part about writing this book, is that I ended up learning history and learning about people that maybe I'd heard a name once or twice in my career, but really getting to realize what were their motivations and, and how did they, you know, they were human beings, and, and why were they doing <laughs> what they were doing? And we forget about that, um, especially when you're learning things out of a textbook or, or science in particular can be very intimidating, and you kind of forget that these are fallible people, and um, they're also smart and sometimes just darn lucky people. Mm -hmm. A good example of that is a guy by the name of William or Bill Coley, and Bill Coley had, was a young physician, actually a young surgeon in New York City, when one day he had a, pac a patient by the name of Bessie Daschle, and she shows up in his office, and she has a, a little lump on her hand. Now, Coley thought this must be an infection, and he tried to drain it, and nothing drained away. And the sort of long story short is that over a three-month period, Bessie Daschle, who was a 19-year-old, very vivacious, energetic, made a very strong impression on everyone around her, this, this woman dies within three months okay. and um, dies, it turns out, of a terrible tumor. And Coley becomes basically, I think it's the only word you can really use is obsessed with why did this vivacious person die and why so quickly and most importantly, could he have done anything about it? So as I relate in the book, he goes on this obsessive quest to determine has anyone ever survived this type of cancer that Bessie was diagnosed with? And he ends up finding the case records from a few years before in Memorial Hospital in New York City, um, a painter by the name of Fred Stein who had survived. And he survived because he had come down with a bout of scarlet fever. So, again, I'm skipping over a lot of information, but what, he, what Coley ends up doing is realizing that if you could give an infection, and what he was really doing was promoting the immune system and really pumping it up, you could actually use that to combat cancer. Now, Bessie Daschle's best friend turned out to be John D. Rockefeller Jr., arguably the richest child in the, in the United States. It's quite fortuitous, and, yeah. Yeah, that was, it worked out well. And funded partly by Rockefeller, uh, Coley ends up developing what become known as Coley toxins, which cause this vigorous, vigorous fever, and the fever cranks up the immune system, and in doing so, in many patients, not all, the uh, immune system was able to kick in and kill the cancer. Now, the problem is it was a very crude attempt. It was successful, but the toxins themselves oftentimes were sufficiently toxic that the patients died from that. So, but uh, this uh, coli toxins, as they were known, 
were actually sold in the United States from 1900 through the 1950s. And, but we f- largely have forgotten about them, largely because of some silly academic politics, which put Coley in a, in a weak position. And um, over time, people largely forgot about his work. They were so sort of overtaken by, uh, by chemotherapies and radiation therapies, correct? Exactly. Primarily by radiation therapy. So um, Coley was working in Memorial Hospital, which is today known as Memorial Sloan Kettering. And um, his boss was given an enormous amount of money and all the radium, all the radioactive radium um, that, the, uh, that Memorial Hospital could ever want. And, but it was under the condition, this was a gift from a, a minor who had lost a child to cancer, but it was under the condition that Memorial Hospital focus entirely on radiation therapy and ditch the things that Coley and others were doing. So it was sort of a fateful decision, and while radiation therapy can be very, very useful, it set back the field of immune oncology arguably a half century to a century. You are listening to How on Earth, if you're just joining us. I'm Chip Granditz, speaking with Professor Michael Kinch on his new book, The End of the Beginning, Cancer, Immunity, and the Future of a Cure. Um, so let's get on to the, the, the final subject in your subtitle, The Future of a Cure. First, tell us about monoclonal antibodies. And I understand you have uh, some personal experience with these in your role at the biotechnology company MedImmune. Yes, I've been working with monoclonal antibodies at MedImmune and other places for for many years now. And as I mentioned earlier, you can think of an antibody as the body's guided missile. It's a very specific protein that has the ability to, when properly made, to attack and to kill, or to just gunk up, um, and 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 uh, to over you know use a scientific term, um, a cancer cell or any other cell that you're targeting, and these monoclonal antibodies. The real breakthrough there is that the body makes antibodies all the time, and there was a technology that was developed in the 1970s uh, by a couple of investigators in the United Kingdom that allowed and researchers to make antibodies against very specific things that they want to make antibodies against. So up until this time, you would have to, let's say I want to make an antibody against a particular molecule, I would inject usually a goat or a horse or something and and pull out the the serum uh, from the blood and try to purify these antibodies. Well, what you get is a gamish of antibodies, some of which are useful, most of which are not. Monoclonal antibodies allowed you to make an antibody that was exactly what you wanted. You could tweak, you can use what's known as genetic engineering techniques to tweak the antibody to make a very highly specific guided missile. And in the case of cancer therapies, um, that guided missile is targeting specifically and hopefully only the cancer cells. Well, as we're coming toward the close of our interview, I want to get right up to the very present the 2018 Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology was awarded to uh, James P. Allison and uh, uh, I believe it's Tasuko Nanjo uh, for innovations in something called checkpoint therapies. Uh, tell us a little bit about checkpoint therapies. Why do you think the Nobel Committee awarded them the prize? Well, uh, it was well-deserved, and what it really comes down to is, you, if you remember earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the fact that there are certain cells that can suppress an immune response. Now, it turns out that cancer cells take advantage of the existence of these suppressor mechanisms, 
and they have found a way, and uh, when I say they have found a way, it's really through um, Darwinian selection. They've gained the ability to utilize these suppressing mechanisms to prevent the immune system from killing the cancer. What um, these two investigators have done that, re that received the 2018 Nobel Prize was to determine that you can use these monoclonal antibodies, specific, particular monoclonal antibodies that, that have been developed um, particularly for the, the, to target a particular molecule, that these antibodies can then shut off that suppression mechanism that the, the cancer cells are using and thereby allow the immune system to suddenly recognize the tumor and attack it. And these therapies have demonstrated some truly miraculous um, outcomes. Probably the most famous example is Jimmy Carter, the former president, who was given only days to live because he had metastatic melanoma that had spread um, all throughout his body and he had multiple lesions in his brain. And he was given days, if not hours, to survive. He was given the therapy and he is still alive today, which is, I believe it's more than a decade after his diagnosis. Wow. So I have to say that the tone of your book is what I call a disciplined optimism. You've talked about the future of a cure with just about a half minute left. I'd like to talk about uh, the cure at the present moment. It's June of 2019. Uh, and from the point of view, for example, of someone who is already at the point of declining chemotherapy in favor of quality of life or somebody who has a friend like that, are there any sorts of, what are the sorts of cancer for which you would advise them to reassess their options today? Well, I, I, A, I'm not going to give any uh, clinical advice, mm -hmm. um, but I would say the biggest thing is that there is incredible hope for utilizing these new immune therapies. Where we've seen the greatest success thus far are in diseases like metastatic melanoma, which we know have immune cell involvement. But we're learning more and more, and we're going from roughly one out of four patients who were otherwise not going to survive our living, and that's the, hence the title of the book, we need to get to 100% of those patients. And it needs to spread beyond metastatic melanoma to many other types of cancer. And I think we're in the stages now of being able to learn more about it and to apply that learning. Well, uh, Professor Michael Kinch, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us here on How on Earth. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show is produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Andres Segovia. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.